0: and welcome to another episode of That Podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Bo, And we have a guest with us again today, uh, Nick Steenhout. Hi, Nick. Hi,
1: guys. How are you?
0: Great, thanks. Doing great. Uh, would you like to uh, give the, the listeners a little introduction to yourself, Nick?
1: Yeah, thanks. I'm um, Well, I'm Nick Steenhout. I've uh, been doing web accessibility in one way or another since the mid-1990s. I'm, I'm quite passionate about it. I do a lot of training and and teaching and auditing and strategic consultation about accessibility and I do a podcast about accessibility as well so I'm I'm having f- several fingers in the pie
2: <laughs> cool so, so I, you've been doing this since the mid 90s yeah oh wow uh what, what was your first web browser uh lynx 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 and
1: then mosaic
0: <coughs> NCSA Mosaic. Mm-hmm.
2: Fun times. Yes. <laughs> how how far how far back do you go, Dave? I don't remember.
0: Um well I've used links, uh but mm-hmm. it was more of a I used it, I learned to use it. Um I think uh, some version of IE would be with me I I I have vague memories of Netscape um, but I don't really think I ever used it like it was just not really available to me but yeah. So IE at some point
2: yeah, I think I used, I think I, I know I used, uh, Mosaic and I use Lynx as well. Yeah. Um, I want to, I, I wanted to say hot Java. Was, was there a web browser written in Java? But that was, I, I think, I think that's what it was, but I think that was after now that I think about it. Cause I think Java probably came after, uh, the browsers came, but yeah, so it's, that's, uh, early days of HTML. There already wasn't a lot of, components to work with. So, uh, accessibility with with the ni- mid 90s, I I I'm all I'm I'm still horrible at it, but I don't think I was thinking about that at all yeah. back then.
1: Most people weren't really thinking about it and, and I mean, one of the big things that we talk a lot about accessibility is making sure that images have the alt attribute applied and and if it's an informative image, you want to have some decent alt text written in. Uh, Considering that the image tag came in, the image element sorry, came in in 1993 and the alt attribute came into HTML in 1995, we had a two, two and a half year period where even if we wanted to make uh, images available and accessible, we didn't have any methods to make that happen. So uh, most people it really wasn't on their radar screen at the time.
2: Mhm. How early were the earliest screen readers for browsers? Oh, well, web
1: screen <laughs> readers. I'm not sure how far back they go, but
2: easily back in the 80s. Oh, uh, um, like web web screen readers, are they are they essentially the same software? I Web screen
1: readers is something that's relatively recent in the in the 2000, which was an adventure to try to make uh, help mostly people with uh, reading impairments like dyslexia to mm-hmm. be able to parse a website. But actual screen readers, which are applications to help people navigate not just the web or a browser, but the entire computer, those those have been around for for a very mm. long
2: time. Hmm okay so I've, I've never actually used one okay. um, which which is something that I'm realizing is probably a, a problem for somebody who <laughs> is considering doing like accessibility stuff it seems like that might be like a first level thing to try for, to, to actually use a screen reader
1: yeah for a very long time a lot of people were saying uh, don't use a screen reader because you're gonna get false positives and because they're really complex softwares to to learn and use and all that but the consensus now in the accessibility community really is learn the basics and play around with it if you're on windows uh, you can get nvda which is a free open source uh, screen reader Uh, nvaccess.org is where you can get it if you're on the Mac ecosystem, of course, VoiceOver is built into uh, to the Mac, and if you happen to be on Linux, uh, there's Orca, which is available. Um, I haven't looked at Orca in Donkey's ears, so I can't really give it help on that. But uh, definitely, you know, grab a screen reader and play around with it and and see what your site looks like. Um, mm. I'm going to give a plug to. Uh, a group that does a lot of good work, WebAIM, W-E-B-A-I-M. So they have on their site really good tutorials on how to use NVDA, VoiceOver, and JAWS uh, for accessibility testing. So that's a great intro.
2: Hmm. So uh, just to give you the level of uh, ignorance I have on this, like I for some reason I assumed that there was something interpreting the HTML directly. Like I, I, assumed it was a, like a screen reading web browser as opposed to just a general purpose. Right. Whole com- whole computer system. Yeah. Whole computer. So th-
1: th- what the screen reader does is it allows interactions with the entire interp- machine, whether it's navigating applications, navigating files, uh, giving feedback as to what is being typed and, uh, doing the screen reading which is depending on the application that's open you're going to have that that interaction so if it's if it's on the web then it's you're going to use an actual browser just like sighted people do and mm-hmm. the screen reader is a layer above that uh, and what the screen reader actually does is look at the uh, the DOM and the accessibility tree to render the information that's there
2: so, so the, the screen reading software has to be aware of the actual application in order to be able to read the DOM, I would guess? Yeah. Okay. So there, there it's poten- you can potentially have a web browser that the screen reader doesn't understand, in which case yeah, it might it, read the text but not the actual like, it, attributes and things. It's
1: funny because um, there's pairing that works best. For example, if you use voiceover, uh, you want to use it on Safari. Uh, I Mm. was giving a demo this morning and I forgot that I was not in Safari and suddenly things were not working. And I thought, is there a bug in my software? And then I realized, oh no, Nick, you're in Firefox. Switch to Safari (laughs) and suddenly it worked. Uh, So that's one pair. Uh, NVDA and Firefox is a pretty good pair. Uh, If you have access to JAWS, usually Edge, uh, IE mostly, uh, more and more with Firefox is okay, but you might get some really strange reaction if you're using JAWS in Chrome, for example. So,
0: hmm.
1: um, knowing the the pair will will give you better, more accurate results rather than
2: false positives. What what is a good pair for Chrome?
1: Chrome for screen readers. I would not necessarily recommend testing in Chrome with a screen reader. <laughs> okay, at this point. Yeah, uh, they they have they have ChromeVox, which is a, a browser-based screen reader, but it doesn't really reflect what people with sight impairments with blindness actually do. They okay. they need access to the entire computer, so they're not going to have a screen reader that only works in the one browser.
0: Mm. Okay, So okay. would it be safe to assume that the people who who actually need these uh, screen readers and use them know which browser to pair with? best yeah So yes. it's safe to assume yes, they, that if they're using jaws they're going to be using edge or if they're using voiceover they're using safari okay that sounds good that's right yeah
2: yeah uh, you hadn't mentioned chrome so I, I figured either there was a an edge case there or a, a no-go sort yeah. of situation <laughs> yeah
0: it's been it's been it's been a few years since i've used one but i do remember using one i don't know what it was called though um but yeah, I, I you mentioned have had you tried you haven't tried it, but I, I have tried it. It was some years ago, um, and a particular piece of software I was working on, it, and we made quite an effort to 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 um, to make it as accessible as possible. But we we were kind of we I I feel like we were making quite an effort without really knowing what we were doing. Um, it's a noble effort, is what I'd say, uh, if that makes sense. I didn't. I mean, I didn't know. Of, I didn't know of any ex- real experts in the field that back then, uh, never mind ones we'd be able to get to help us, if if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. Now we're, we're talking a lot about screen readers and folks who are blind or have sight impairments. I'd like to also point out that some people with dyslexia will rely on screen readers because it's easier for them to process that that audio when they're reading a lot of text. So they're, they're mm-hmm. following what's on the screen while they're having the, uh, the, uh, the voice announced what's mm-hmm. going on. And also there's this concept that accessibility is not just about people with sight impairments. You know, where we have people that have, uh, maybe it's hearing loss, uh, deafness, uh, people with cognitive disabilities, you know maybe they've played football and been hit on the head once too many times and suddenly mm-hmm. their capacity of being able to focus without headaches is diminished. Maybe animation is going to make them feel nauseated. Um, uh, maybe it's someone that has a learning impairment or you know, one of the 8% of men that have colorblindness and, and you're working on a system that has yes, no toggles and yes is green and no is red. Well, not very helpful as if there's no other differentiating factor than, than color.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I think that uh, accessibility isn't something that I think about a lot. Um, and I think a, a lot of people who don't have to worry about those sorts of things don't really mm-hmm. think about them until they get put in a situation where all of a sudden it, it makes a difference. Yeah. Um I had uh, I had back surgery, I think, I don't remember how long ago, like 2005. Um, and it was very difficult for me to get around. I actually had a, a walker that I was using. Uh, suddenly, tasks like going to the bathroom at a rest, uh, like a, going to a restroom at a fast food restaurant suddenly became very obvious which places cared about yeah. accessibility and which didn't. Um, so I, I think that, you know, I've heard of a lot of stories about people who've had similar sort of things where they, they don't think about it until all of a sudden they're introduced to a problem. And they're like, oh, wow, that's yeah. <laughs> that that's a bad thing. Or I see why this is handled this way now. Or this is why it's important to have accessible restrooms and being able to get into a building without going upstairs. Um same thing. I've I've heard similar stories about people who have had like temporary blindness mm. or temporary like, like things like that, where all of a sudden they can't use their computer yeah. anymore um, or break their arm and now they can't type or they only have one hand to type. It's things like that. That um, until you're put in those situations or know somebody in them, yeah. it can be difficult.
1: Funny thing is, uh, I've been using a wheelchair for for a very long time now, and couple of years ago I managed to broke both my arms at the same time, more or less. Mm. And it really cramped my style when I was trying to type 80 words per minute f- at first and suddenly I was you know, I couldn't move my thumbs, couldn't move my wrists, and I was typing two fingered. So I I found myself using assistive technology that I had been using for testing, but I hadn't relied on. And it's an entirely different experience to have mm. to rely on something that you're not, you know, you may mm. be aware of, or you may have used before, but suddenly you have to. So it's uh, it's quite an experience. Yeah,
0: that's really interesting. That's a, something you something you, a tool you're sort of intimately familiar with because you you you've done lots of testing with it, but you never had to rely on it. That that's quite interesting. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So what's what's where the sort of the things that kind of got you into like weather accessibility things specifically.
1: My aha moment came into three different incidents in about the space of a month. I had been doing a lot of disability rights activism. And obviously as a wheelchair user, I was aware of physical buildings, uh, the, the built environment, accessibility. And on the side, I'd been playing with HTML, you know, making a little bit of a website here and there. And, uh, Colleague of mine came into my office, he's blind, and he said, Nick, what is it with all those images on the web? And he showed me a website, and his screen reader kept announcing image, 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 but there was no more information. And I looked at it on the screen and I realized that the designer wanted to use really cool looking fonts, but we didn't have access to CSS at the time. So, as you did at the time, you went into Photoshop and created your layout, and then you sliced images, and they hadn't put alt text. So all these images for the menu were thoroughly not accessible, which meant my friend could not use the, um, the site. The second part was uh, another colleague who's deaf who got a new printer, and she didn't get any other Information or tech support on how to set up the printer than a CD with a video that didn't have captions. So I thought, oh, well, yeah, that's where captions are important because you can't actually set up the stuff without the information. And the third final bit happened about a month after Horacio came in, and that was a customer of ours said that they were having problems on the web because everything was so distracting. She had ADHD and large heading fonts were distracting blue underlined links were distracting. And the one site in particular, she showed me had the marquee tag. So I don't know if you guys remember that, but it was really rather horrible. So we, um, we set about uh, building a, basically a CSS reset uh, before this was a thing, but for her and suddenly she was able to use the, use the web. So having had these interactions, it really made me think about the importance of accessibility on the web, just as much as accessibility in the built environment. So from there on, I was, I was hooked and I married my passion for accessibility in general with my interest in the web and, here I am, 25-plus years later, doing WebEx. It's really interesting.
0: It, it's really nice that those three three events came together so close that to, to, to mm. tipped you over the edge uh, to, yeah. to, to pursue this. It's really cool.
1: Really a, a bit of synchronicity.
2: So um, there there are actual standards now, right? There weren't back then. Like you said, there were no alt tags. Yeah for images. Uh, but since then they've added things like alt tags, like what, like are there like standards bodies that are paying attention to this now? Um, like, like who pushed to have alt tags, or I think there's the ARIA tags or ARIA attributes, all sorts of things.
1: The different standards will vary a lot depending on the jurisdiction. Uh, so the, the legislation in Germany is not the same as it is in the United States as it is in Australia. Uh, Making a, a really wild assumption that the majority of your listeners are based in the US. I will focus a little bit on that. Um, there's really two bodies that, two things that focus on accessibility. First, you may have heard of Section 508, which is, um, Section 508 of the Vocational Rehabilitation Act of 1970 something. Um, that's been amended and amended, that says that any federal government agencies or organization receiving federal funding must have provide access to their documents. And they created their own range of standards to follow. And then there's the web content accessibility guidelines, which people refer as WCAG or WCAG, depending on who speaks. But those are a set of accessibility standards that are accepted at an international level. And recently, the Section 508 guidelines were aligned with WCAG. So what it comes down to is, regardless of where you're at in the world, basically the accessibility standard you're focusing on is WCAG. And that was put together by the W3C, the World Wide Web Consortium, Uh, which also does HTML and CSS and all these good things. So from an accessibility, pure accessibility perspective, we're looking at WCAG. It's called the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, but really it applies to all format of digital content to the point that the next major release of the guidelines are just going to be called Accessibility Guidelines. Uh, we're looking at, uh, we just went live with version 2.1 of WCAG. Uh, there's also area, which is the accessible rich internet application, uh, guidelines, which allow a series of tags. Well, attributes, really attributes and roles and values to improve accessibility, especially when it interacts with, um, JavaScript and dynamic content. And there's a couple of the small ones that are not quite as
2: mission critical. Okay. So uh, as far as like, like legal things, it sounds like this is actually legally required by certain organizations. Uh,
1: Yes. So in terms of your legal requirement to, to build accessibility into your system, uh, If you touch anything that's remotely with federal government, you have the Section 508. If you are working for an airline, you may have to um, make your website accessible under the Air Carriers Accessibilities Act, and that refers to WCAG. If you're running a business, uh, you will have the requirement to not make your website discriminate against people with disabilities under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Now, it's it's a bit funny because the ADA came into place really before the web. And the there is no specific requirement in the ADA for web accessibility. But businesses are losing lawsuits because even though there's not a requirement for accessibility, there's a requirement to not discriminate. So Basically any business doing um any organization doing business on the web uh, has to be accessible for people with disabilities. Therefore the best standards to follow is, is WCAG.
2: Yeah, I've not put any <laughs> I I've, I've put very little effort into that aside from any of the the tags or you know remembering mm. like alt tags and things like that. But like uh, the tags that are included in like any, like the, the boilerplate, like HTML, boot, uh, was it HTML bootstrap? Or yeah, no, bootstrap. H- what was, well, there's bootstrap, but there was another HTML five. Bo- oh, it was just HTML five boilerplate. I think that had some of that stuff in it as well. So that's probably my, the, the most research mm. I've done is looking at why those yeah. things were included. Um, so in that sense, those sorts of tools have been helpful to sort of, spread spread the the word but i didn't take much further than that i
1: don't really like to push accessibility from the the legal perspective because i think really accessibility is about people it's about people using the web people using your apps and we want people to be able to use those systems but if we're if we're going to go down the the road of, of compliance and think about lawsuits then it really behooves you as a developer to actually understand these things because what you're going to see more and more is it's not just the business that has a non-accessible site that's going to get sued but it's also the developer and the business owners Uh, you know so you are leaving yourself at risk by not having this basic skill set of of web developer, you know, you you have to have some knowledge about what you do. And in theory, you're supposed to understand HTML and CSS and maybe a bit of JavaScript. And, and as part of that skill set that the developer has, they they should really know and understand at least basic uh, accessibility.
0: Yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, well, I think what you're trying to say there is, you know, you've got to, at some point, you need to be thinking about improving the experience for the users yeah. here. And all, that's all users the results of that thing of in the same way, I mean, we've just been through the whole GDPR thing and mm. that we all had to learn a lot about privacy. And in a lot of ways, the things we've been, I've been doing for that is improving our systems with regards to, uh, the privacy of our users and their data. Mm. But ultimately, There's also that legal side of it where we, you know, we we really need to cover our own asses with this by doing these certain things. You know, I mean, for all, uh, there are so many things you could do that will cover you. But and might not ever truly improve any user experience. Mm. So you've got to do a bit of both, I think you need to. It's it's not it's not it's not necessarily a nice way to think talk about it with the legal ramifications, but you do have to think about them and consider them as a risk, attorney.
1: The other thing is you have to consider that accessibility is good for everyone. You know, uh, one of the things we talk about with accessibility is color contrast. You have to have a contrast ratio ratio of at least four point five to one. So gray text on gray background is a no no from an accessibility perspective. But if you're trying to read a web page on your mobile and you're outside in the park and you have gray on gray, suddenly the site is going to be really hard to read. So proper contrast is going to be good for you. Uh, We're talking about things like using plain English and that helps people with cognitive disabilities, but it's also going to help the young mother who has a screaming toddler in our hands and she's trying to find information about uh, health for her baby on the web, a reading on her mobile, simple text is really going to be useful for her. Um, we're talking about associating labels with their input forms. Uh, it's good for assistive technologies, but it's also good for giving you a bigger target size when you're on your mobile. So there's all these things that actually make a website usable by people with disabilities are going to improve all of users mm. experience
0: but it's almost like that some of those are actually just good practices anyway without even considering yeah the users with disabilities mm-hmm. it's interesting you mentioned the color contrast because i only noticed the other day for the first time that uh, one of the um i can't remember the, the sort of the code name for it, the auditing system in chrome developer tools uh is measures that now so it'll It'll examine all the text on the yeah. page and give mm. you the contrast ratios. I'd not seen that before, but I was aware of the contrast ratios and the requirements. Um, even though I'm pretty lax at it sometimes, um, it's it's really weird because I just look at I eyeball. I I do that thing of eyeballing it and think, oh yeah, that's fine. And mm. nine times out of ten, I'm actually I'm actually wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's quite cool. If, uh, if you look in Chrome, if anyone's listening, Chrome Developer Tools. It's in one of the uh, audits. You, you let it run; it runs on your page, and it will tell you uh, all the elements on the on your web page that uh, aren't satisfying those uh, yeah. color contrast ratios.
1: That tool is fantastic. I'm really glad they put it in. And one of the things to be aware of is that it relies on your CSS declaration for foreground and background colors. So if if it's if you have a background image, it's not going to be able to analyze that. So it's it's good to pick up on a lot of things, but it's not necessarily going to pick up on everything.
2: Yeah, so like uh, transcripts were something that uh, we just recently started to explore on our, our yep. podcast site. And this was a direct result of your podcast accessibility yep. page, um, which I'd like to talk about, but The, that is a great example of that's, that's just useful period Um, of, you know, in terms of adding to the user experience of our users who are listeners, being able to look at the episode and find out exactly what people are saying and, you know, being able to do a search of that text rather than having to listen to the whole thing. Um, You know, there's some SEO stuff there as well, where now the content of the episode is actually searchable, um, even offsite. Um, I mean, these were things that, you know, Dave and I had kicked around a few times probably of trying to get, find a way to get, you know, either get the, the audio searchable. I think, I can't remember who it was, but there was someone who had a Mm -hmm. search API that you could give them an MP3, um, and you could type in some text and they would tell you where in the Mm. MP3 that text existed. Um, but it required an API um, listener uh, like a webhook callback, and uh, our our site currently is a static site, so we never, we were never able to do that. Um, but we had talked about trying to find a way to make it easier to find the content mm. from our episodes. Um, we've had a couple of people say you're like we. Sometimes we have really short show notes. <laughs> Sometimes they're really super detailed. And you know, we've had people say we want I wanted to listen to the episode. I wanted to hear this one specific thing, but I ha- where is it? Um and you know, if you have 50 items on your show notes and it's a two and a half hour long podcast, um our our, our older podcast used to be right. quite long. <laughs> uh you know, it was difficult like where like if you were interested in in one specific topic, you couldn't find it easily. Um so you know the, the site that you talked about, like, and also just making this so that other people can consume the content who wouldn't yeah. be able to otherwise, uh, was kind of the thing that pushed me over the edge um, to actually Thank try to implement that.
0: Yeah. Uh, I'm, and I'll be totally honest. I mean, just the SEO benefits of having the transcriptions was the thing that was in my mind for so long. And when Bo mentioned the accessibility side of it, I can't believe I hadn't really even considered that before. And, and I guess it's hard. It's a bit of a... Yeah. a disconnect in terms of immediately think of uh sort of transcriptions are hard of hearing and then podcasts and hard of hearing just don't marry up But yeah. you know it's still a, it's it's so right you know it's not hard for us to do uh and yeah it could be so useful mm-hmm. for somebody mm-hmm. um, and again there's another thing that I mean, just talked about you know providing benefits um and you mentioned uh, closed captions um on videos, is it is it closed captions in it? I mean, we we always call them subtitles in the UK, uh, but I think there's
1: uh, there, there's a difference between subtitles and closed captions. Subtitles oh. are there in general to help someone who doesn't speak the language to uh, okay. understand what's going on. So as a, an alternate to dubbing, and subtitles generally will only provide information about the spoken word, whereas of captions yeah. are going to give clues about all the audio so if there's a dog barking you're going to see that cute dog barking if there's music you're going to see music if there's a door slamming you're going to get that information that's going to um, allow someone who has a hearing uh, impairment uh, whether they're hard of hearing or they're deaf to actually get the full
2: experience as much of the full experience as possible
0: oh thank you for clearing that up Uh, no 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 problem Um,
2: is Is that is that a case where technology sort of uh, is reusing the same technology in multiple places? Um, Like, I know that, like, if we look at a DVD, sometimes you'll see the audio channels. Um, So there's like different audio channels, and there's also different uh, caption channels, where where sometimes like the they choosing between the descriptive audio versus um, a different language for for the subtitles themselves. Technically, is it still transferred the same way? Like, is it still encoded into the the, the content? It should be the encoded same the
1: same way. Yeah, the the encoding should be the same. Uh, where you're going to have a difference is when you're looking at non-one based media. For example, uh, subtitles or caption on uh, live TV is going to be uh, probably different encoding because okay uh, you have access to the closed caption, you need to do something about it. Whereas if they're pushing a subtitled show to air, it becomes a a different uh, codec if you want, which is Mm. open caption. So it's slightly different technically, but on the web for the majority of of users that are doing stuff on the web, whether it's video or audio, it's don't worry about it.
2: Mm. Okay.
0: Mm. Well, yeah. I mean, so what I was going to say was, um, I don't know if it—it's one of those things where I—I um, I see this a lot now. I see a lot of uh, videos that are shared online get the—I don't know if they are subtitles or closed captions, but one or the other definitely added on. Um, and I think part of that is because there is so much content consumed on phones in public places, and I don't know about you, but I'll have my media volume turned to zero all the time because I don't want that noise when I'm on the bus or in the bar or wherever I am. But all these videos, because of that, are getting those. um, And they're probably not as accessible as they should be, but I guess, in a way, it's making the content better for everyone, even if it does help a little bit.
1: Yeah, I always say it's better to... implement a little bit of accessibility rather than not at all. So if if people tell me, but Nick, what about deaf, blind person who's paralyzed from the neck down? And I'm going to say, look, that's an edge case. Don't worry about it. Worry about the person who's blind. Worry about the person who's deaf. Worry about the person who's paralyzed. And if you can hit the the low hanging fruit, you can put 20% of your effort to get 80% of the way there. Mm -hmm. Do that.
2: So uh, tell us a little bit more about the podcast accessibility project like where where that came from how it's going what you sort of expect out of it
1: right so i'm i'm i've been running the accessibility rules podcast since july last year and my little secret is that i'm a podcaster who doesn't listen very many to very many podcasts because i'm hard of hearing And I generally find it very hard to consume podcasts just by listening to it. And I made it a point to provide transcript for every single show I put out. And I got into trying to find really interesting podcasts and I discovered most of them didn't have transcripts. So it annoyed me and... Every time I brought it up to podcaster, they said, oh, I don't know how, or I didn't know how important it was, or it's too expensive, or any other number of reasons, which are often quite valid. So I thought we need a place where people, podcasters, can go and have easy-to-digest information about why it's important What benefit is it going to be to them, not just their listeners? And how do you implement accessibility? So that's how the site podcast-accessibility.com got born. Uh, It actually happened in the space of about three hours with a friend of mine. We got the domain, we put stuff on GitHub, and off we went. Cool.
2: So I've I've taken a look at it, and actually, um, I think you... Somewhere on that, uh, somewhere on the side, it said like the, the, the base level for a podcast should be transcripts. Um, so you, you had a whole section on transcripts. Yeah. Uh, I tried out Rev, I think it's Rev.com, R-E-V. Yeah. Um, that worked out pretty well for me uh, so far. There, there were a couple of in- interesting typos that we got from it, but by and large, it was mostly awesome. Um, what, what other yeah. sort of accessibility things are you planning on adding to the site or have already added to the site?
1: Yeah, the, there's a whole section on how to make uh, your website accessible because it's fine to have transcript. But if you have someone who, uh, for example, is not a mouse user and gets to your website and needs to navigate the site with just a keyboard, you have to make sure that it's keyboard accessible. So there's a whole section about website accessibility, and then there's the, a section about uh, the player, the, the accessibility of the player itself, which is not necessarily something you have control over with, depending on the podcasting platform you use. But as time goes by, and and I find a bit of spare time here and there, I'm going to analyze different podcasting platforms like Blurberry and Podbean mm. and all these things to see... How accessible it is and how easy it is to to actually make accessible. So
2: that's interesting because I we we have a I don't even remember which one we have, but we do have a on site listen capability. But my assumption is that most people are listening through a podcast app, whether it be iTunes or mm. Spotify. Now, um, I, I use Overcast on my iPhone. Um, I, Is that something you think is common for people who are trying to consume podcasts with accessibility concerns, or do you think a lot of people are actually playing it on, on the website directly?
1: My, my stats for my podcast show that I have more people using podcasting apps to, to listen to the show. But I do have a large percentage of people that come and do direct downloads from my site or visit the site and, uh, making an assumption here is probably those people for whom the apps mm-hmm. are not available mm-hmm. or accessible. So if if I have uh, someone who's blind that wants to listen to the podcast and they can't actually use Overcast, for example, they're likely to go back to, mm-hmm. to the site. Uh, and then there's all the people that will want to rely on the transcript need to be able to interact with the mm-hmm. site as well. So it's probably a larger percent of your um, listeners that are going to be accessing the the podcast through the site rather than through an app.
0: Yeah, it's quite interesting. It? I mean, I, I just had a quick look as we were talking then, and uh, so I mean, even even just taking the the, the mouse example, um, our, our little embedded media player doesn't isn't doesn't appear to be in the sort of the tabbing order at all, Bo. You know, so while we've, we've got that mm. download link so they can download the MP3, that gets tabbed to nicely. But just tabbing through the links, it goes from the download through to talk about the background image, then subscribing to our newsletter, uh, you know, or the player just gets bypassed completely. So that would be considered to be, you know, inaccessible to... Yeah. So that mouse user... Oh, mouse. What? Well, what do we could be people who don't use a mouse, I guess.
1: Yeah. So the keyboard users, yeah,
0: yeah, so that's quite yeah. interesting. So, and to be honest, it's something that would completely have bypassed my my thoughts, especially when you know, I mean, generally, um, the way, um, the way a page like that flows—it's quite a simple page, you know, for a podcast episode. Um, you know, the links are going to be well described; they flow in a natural order, you know, down the page. So it's not something I'd have even considered that the tab. And I know I, yeah. I, when I, in the past, when I've considered the tabbing order of things, it's usually been on sort of big, complicated forms, you know, where uh, you need that logical, I mean, because that benefits uh, power users as well. You know, people who use the forms, you know, they're not, they don't want to use the mouse. They want to stick to the keyboard and yeah. they don't want to tap through the form in a logical order. Uh, mm-hmm. so that's when I've really turned on that kind of thinking, but yeah, if something like that, I would have just, in my head, it would, I would have just assumed that that media player would find, would be found as you tab through, but yeah, it's not. So.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of surprises like that, that you think should be working properly or be made in an accessible way. And then you start testing and it's like, Oh, it's not. So,
0: Yeah. Um, just talking about the um, transcripts, uh, a podcast I used to listen to quite a lot. I haven't done recently. Uh, Startups for the Rest of Us. Um, they've been going for a really long time, and they're almost up to episode four hundred. And as far as I know, they've been uh, transcribing their their episodes for for ages, uh, and that's it's pretty really cool uh, mm. to think of all that content over almost four hundred episodes of and the, you know the 30 yeah. 40 minute long episodes are fully transcribed for people that's really cool to uh, to think about
2: which podcast is that
0: uh, startups for the rest of us
2: Ah, okay
0: so yeah i'm i'm quite uh, I had, a, I mean, when Bo set the interview up, I, I had a quick look around the the podcast accessibility site. Uh, but it's something there, yeah. It's actually a, quite a good little project for me and Bo if we wanted to learn a bit more about this stuff because we both work on larger products and sites during the day. And uh, if I wanted to go and start applying some of this stuff there. I could do. I could, you know, but it'd be a trickle. constantly yeah. as I go, Whereas we could literally, with your with the podcastaccessibility dot com website, we could literally take everything, and apply it to our very small podcast site, mm-hmm. and you know, achieve a reasonable level of uh, hopefully satisfactory experience for just about everybody out there.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think it's going to be a great, great resource for people. Yeah, I hope so. So did you have anything else you wanted to talk about, Nick? Um, I think we've pretty much
1: gone around. The uh, Perhaps my parting thought would be to remind people that accessibility is about people, that there's a large number of people with disabilities out there, and that it also benefits people without disabilities. So what are you waiting for? Just go forth and implement accessibility as much as you can.
0: Yeah, thanks for coming on. It's been really interesting. Thanks. Thanks for having me.
2: All right, we'll call this one a wrap. Cheers. Thanks, guys.
0: Thanks, Nick. It was really good.
2: You've been listening to That Podcast with Bo and Dave. You can find Bo on Twitter and Google Plus at Bo Simonson and Dave on Twitter at Dave Development. You can subscribe to this podcast and review it on iTunes. If you'd like to review us, but don't feel like we've earned five stars, email us so that we can talk about your issues. You can also subscribe to this podcast with RSS from our website, thatpodcast.io. From our website, you can also sign up for our newsletter to get super secret extra content from Bo and Dave sent directly to your inbox. Like the music? You can thank Grillo for allowing us to sample the track Dust Kingdom for our intro and outro. You can find Dust Kingdom and other tracks by Grillo at grillo.bandcamp.com spelled g-r-i-l-l-o